for December 14th, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Milder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in the cane break by an old mama lion. Can't know a high-toned woman make me walk the line. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. A widespread belief among analysts in energy and economics is that we can have continued economic growth without a corresponding consumption of resources, especially energy resources. This idea, usually called decoupling, has some support. For example, there's data to show that the energy intensity of the U.S. economy, that is, the energy in BTUs per dollar of GDP generated, has been falling for about 15 years now, with similar data for the rest of the developed world. And this seems to contradict the widespread perception that resources were actually getting scarcer and consequently more expensive during the decade of the uh uh-ohs, and the idea that it was increasing scarcity which contributed to the sharp rise in commodity prices, including the prices of all fuels, up until the financial crash in the middle of 2008. The idea of decoupling is attractive because it suggests that we can proceed with energy transition without much in the way of negative consequences, that by increasing the efficiency of the economy and becoming a more technologically complex human society, we can have economic growth even in an era of constraints on our production of fossil fuels and on our carbon emissions budgets. Maybe we can have a fairly smooth transition from conventional fuels to renewables and cut our carbon emissions low enough to avoid catastrophic global warming in the process without even noticing it much. But is this decoupling really happening, or are we looking at faulty data and metrics? What are the essential relationships between energy resources and the economy? What can metrics like the energy return on investment, or EROI, of different fuels tell us about the future direction of the economy? To help us answer these difficult questions, our guest today is Dr. Kerry King, a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin and assistant director at their Energy Institute. He has a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, and he performs interdisciplinary research related to how energy systems interact with the economy and the environment. He is extensively published on the subject, and it's a great pleasure to have him on the show. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Kerry, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. So I'd like to just kick this off by delving straight into the data on energy intensity. Does the declining energy intensity of an economy tell us that resource scarcity is not, in fact, an important issue and that economic growth can continue without a corresponding growth in our consumption of resources? 
So energy intensity by itself, I don't think tells you too much about resource scarcity, although we could argue maybe it tells us something. One way I try to think about energy issues is to think about how various trends have changed over time. And one of the longest time series about energy intensity that I'm aware of is about England and the United Kingdom over the last 700 or so years. And when you look at it over that time frame, energy intensity rose and fall a little bit with population. But then during the industrial transition to an industrial economy, the energy intensity of the United Kingdom went up over, say, 50% over about 100 years and starting in the late 1700s. And then it's been declining ever since then. So one interpretation of that is that once steam engines effectively and coal were combined to enable industrialization, resources were effectively so abundant that you didn't have to be that efficient at using them to grow the economy. So energy intensity increased, and that's you know how much energy input is there divided by the economic output of the country. So energy consumption increased rapidly. GDP increased rapidly also. During that industrial transition time, it just turns out that energy increased more rapidly than GDP did. And then since the late 1800s, energy intensity has been declining in the UK. So one could view that as a signal that resources were more scarce and that you had to start producing more output for less energy input after that time. So we're mostly used to energy intensity decreasing and thinking that as we decrease this number, we're getting less dependence upon resources. But that's not all the story. So if your economy started to enter into a recession, for example, but for some reason your resource consumption didn't fall as rapidly, it would actually look the other way. It would look like your energy intensity was going up when in fact it's more like just an artifact of the math. Could be. Another way to think about it is, I suppose, what economists call elasticity or what's the sensitivity of one input to its output. So, for example, if you say, what is the relative change in GDP compared to the relative change in energy consumption? So if, if you look at the worldwide data for energy consumption and gross world product, for every 10% change in energy consumption, there's a 6% change in GDP. So that also works in the, in the opposite direction. So if I increase energy production, I increase GDP. If I decrease energy production, then the same trend works in the opposite direction. So the same kind of goes for energy intensity. The more I'm leveraging a large amount of GDP on a small amount of energy, I don't have to theoretically increase energy as much to grow GDP. But if I decrease energy just a little bit, there's a lot more GDP leveraged on that energy to go down even more quickly. Right. So this is something that never really sat right with me about energy intensity. It's that GDP is the denominator because GDP, as I explained in our episode 13 on peak oil, is really a, a very big, gross metric that includes all sorts of societal goods and bads. For example, if you go to war, it generally boosts the GDP, but not too many people would actually say that going to war is a good thing. So do you have any similar reservations about energy intensity as a metric? I suppose not more than what you might have just said there about GDP as a metric. You know, is gross domestic product the wrong metric because it includes, as you say, bads as well as goods as increasing GDP, things like war and destroying infrastructure and then rebuilding it and saying that is an increase in GDP. So 
probably nothing more than to say that, yeah, there are alternative metrics such as genuine progress indicator or other things that, that might more accurately indicate what we value about what the economy should be doing. Right. Okay. So the improving energy intensity ratios of the developed world is often cited as evidence that the developing world can go down the same path, that they could ultimately obtain a higher standard of living with a highly energy efficient economy, and hopefully with a low enough carbon emissions to keep us below a two degree warming threshold while enjoying a relatively comfortable lifestyle. But there's also evidence that this is just an artifact of looking at the energy consumption and emissions of a given country in isolation. So, for example, the U.S. outsourced much of its manufacturing capacity to China, and consequently the energy consumption and emissions of the U.S. went down, but China's went up. So if you look at the whole world together, the evidence for this decoupling thesis is quite a bit weaker. Have you looked into that question? Uh, I've thought about it a little bit, but not too in-depth as some other people. But the way to think about it that that I enjoy is to think about, yeah, what if, instead of the energy consumption and GDP that occurs within a geographic region, we have to think more about the total resource consumption that occurs from the people in that geographic region relative to the GDP of that region, for example. So if we're importing a lot of resources from China, as you're saying, because they're doing a lot of manufacturing. Our environmental or energy footprint, if you will, is based upon our consumption, not as our production, which is missing from the generic energy intensity number. So that's the main way I think about it. And the other one, as you're saying, is, you know, can every country be at the same energy intensity? Well, countries are not equal on many metrics. And the question is whether whether developing countries that might have a higher energy intensity or just a, let's just say, a lower standard of living in general, will attain our standard of living in developed countries, and effectively whether our economic system will, will let them do that. If you're a country in Africa and you don't produce heavy machinery, have an education system to train people to produce heavy machinery and manufacturing and hospitals, are you really going to leapfrog us by going to a renewable energy infrastructure if you have to buy it? from us and Asia rather than developing it yourself. Mm -hmm. My thoughts at the moment are that you can't leapfrog the developed countries by just buying stuff from them. We're probably not going to sell it to you at a, a price that allows you to do that. But in energy intensity terms, is there any indication that on a global level, energy intensity is improving? It has been decreasing, although I think in the last 10 to 20 years, I think maybe not as much. It's been relatively constant. And a lot of this, I think, was uh, influenced by China joining the World Trade Organization and becoming a, essentially a global manufacturing hub and using coal mostly for that. So I think the trends of energy intensity have been declining basically for certainly since World War II globally are not decreasing as much anymore, certainly as you would weight it as a market exchange rate basis, as they might say, instead of a power purchasing basis. So you would, if I'm hearing you correctly, you are a little bit skeptical of this decoupling thesis as sort of a global path to decarbonizing the global economy. Well, decoupling from energy, and I, and I would say it different than decoupling of carbon. So first, sure, fair uh, decoupling of energy. So no, I don't see evidence that we have decoupled economic productivity or GDP from energy. If you just plot how much energy is being consumed per year or really power the rate of energy consumption, 
versus GDP, it looks almost like a straight line, right? More GDP equals more power consumption. So just a one-to-one relationship. It's pretty close to -to one-to-one. Yeah, Yeah, not at a slope of one, but it's pretty close to -to one-to-one. So, so that relationship is, is still holding. And as I said, this, it's also evidenced in this elasticity calculation, which would say that every 10% increase in GDP is accompanied by six or 7% increase in energy consumption. So then you translate that to carbon. And I mean, just from the fact that most of energy consumption is still fossil fuel driven, we haven't decoupled from the carbon aspect as yet either. I think decoupling or producing electricity from mostly no carbon sources is a lot more feasible than you know things that aren't powered by electricity, things that are just generated by heat. End use resources of heat and transportation are much harder, but that's a, a larger question. So the question of what it costs to do the transition to carbon is not obvious about how fast you can do it without essentially putting yourself into recession by the nature of the transition itself. But that's sort of a uh, maybe a larger conversation or question we can address. So one of the key metrics in this area of study is EROI, the energy return on investment, which tells you how much energy you get back for a given investment in an energy source. And we covered this topic at length with our mutual friend Dave Murphy in episode seven. So I don't think we need to discuss the basics on that again. But one of the things that's always challenging about EROI, especially for those who aren't geeks like us or interested in it for intellectual reasons, is how to make it policy relevant. And this seems like an area where it really should be relevant. Is there a relationship between energy intensity ratio of an economy and the EROI of the fuels it burns? You mentioned the term energy intensity ratio, which is a a term I use to compare the prices of fuels to the energy intensity of the economy. It essentially scales in a similar way as energy return on investment. So it essentially scales as in this case, really power produced per year divided by power input per year. So how to make EROI or net energy concepts policy relevant, I think is to explain how they can and can't translate to economic metrics. So effectively, energy return on investment where you calculate the energy produced over the lifetime of a technology, say divided by the energy inputs over the lifetime of the technology, is inversely related to cost. So EROI in this case has energy output in the numerator and the cost of energy has energy output in the numerator. So by definition, they are inversely related. So one way to translate between the two is to simply plot them next to each other and sort of observe this inverse relationship. But they're essentially looking at two sides of the same coin or they're they're two ways of talking about the same issue. Cost is, in some sense, reflecting the technological capability of providing an energy service, and EROI is reflecting the same basic principle, but just, in some sense, another language. So I basically view EROI and cost as looking at the same concept, but they're just inversely related. Okay. So if you have declining EROI, as we have with fossil fuels, generally speaking, Can that tell us anything about the future trajectory of the economy? Well, it certainly tells you how things have been going. So if we sort of take the idea that EROI and cost are inversely related, for example, 
the calculation that's actually done for things like the oil and gas industry or that use annual economic numbers. These are rates, right? The rate of money per year or the rate of energy per year, comparing it to power. So a power return ratio is inversely related to price, just like an energy return ratio is inversely related to cost. So when we're looking at the trends of what people are usually calling ROI, it's usually a reflection of prices or the state of the economy at the time. And if you're thinking about prices and the state of the economy at the time, these are a function of both sort of production and consumption. What are the ways in which people can consume energy and can they afford it? And what are the ways in which people can produce energy and can they afford to produce it? So a declining trend in ROI is effectively giving the same information as an increase in prices. And the question is, is it too high or too low? Is there some threshold that's meaningful? And I think this is a little bit more well understood for thinking about expenditures on energy than it is the energy return on investment or the, the power return on investment for individual technologies. So I don't think I answered your question, but... <laughs> I mean, I take your point that if EROI is declining or increasing, that people are going to look at that as a proxy for price, because what people really think about is price. But EROI itself is price blind. It's just about the energy, right? So if you're looking at a declining EROI trend, let's say a net energy trend for fossil fuels, shouldn't that tell you that just on a purely energetic basis, never mind the price, that it's going to be harder to have economic growth in the future? All right. So let me address whether EROI is a uh, price independent or economy sort of independent metric. And my answer is it can be, but a lot of times when people talk about it, it's not. So basically the way that EROI or a power return ratio can be independent as much as you can from economic issues such as prices or what people can afford is if you literally don't embed any information in the calculation that involves money or effectively decisions by people. So as soon as you want to talk about something like, well, if I spent some money on engineering services to drill an oil well, and then I use the money to convert to energy, and the money is some proxy for the amount of energy that was consumed, I have just instantly there included information about the economy into the calculation of EROI, and is no longer independent of decision-making and the state of the economy. Point taken. So the only way to make it, have it independent of the state of the economy is to do, as you indicated, which is effectively to only use power or energy information. So this is one thing I did in the paper from last year in the journal Energies, which was to take the data from the International Energy Agency, and they have a category called energy industry owned use. So this is effectively the energy carriers and potentially some primary energy resources consumed by the energy industry to produce energy. Right. So it's effectively a, as pure of a energy return on investment, but in this case, I called it a power return ratio because it's energy per year. The units are energy per year that are spent, production or investment. And calculate this number for the data for about 44 countries for as much as existed in the data until 2010. And that number showed that for the last, say, 20 years or so, that this number has been between effectively 15 and 19. But before 1983, this number was probably larger than 30. So just using this attempted calculation of energy return on investment that is most independent of economic information, there still seems to be 
a decline from essentially the before the 80s and after the 80s, and then it's been relatively constant since then. So effectively, that's a global metric. So effectively, we start from there and then include other economic information. And at that point, you are starting to understand as soon as you include other information from there, it's effectively economic proxy information, I guess. Right. Just to be clear, that's an average of energy investment across the global energy sector. That's correct. So it's a calculation for every country in the list, and then each country was averaged based upon how much energy it produced to okay. create a global average number. So the okay. global average is around 14 units of gross energy production or primary energy production for every one unit of energy carrier input. Down from 30 prior to the 80s. Yeah, something probably over 30. Okay. And I, I just want to make another clarification here. You have made a distinction a couple times now between power and energy, and I want to make sure I understand that. So when you say power, are you talking about sort of final energy or maybe as some would call it exergy as opposed to the energy input of the original fuel? Right. So understanding the difference between power and energy is actually pretty important and key. And I think it's left out of a lot of conversations. So when I say power, I literally mean if you're using units of power, which are units of energy over time. So for example, a watt is a unit of power and it's joules per second. And energy, a unit of energy is joules. So the way to think about it from a EROI standpoint is say, comparing what is usually done as a calculation of the energy return on investment for a wind turbine to the calculation that is usually done for, say, the oil and gas industry. So for a wind turbine, you would say, okay, how much does it cost to, to manufacture the wind turbine in energy terms and install it at the beginning, and then some maintenance over, say, 30 years, and then I potentially decommission it in 30 years. And there's some energy requirement today over 30 years, and then again, 30 years later. So it, it's a power consumption each year, it's an energy consumption over power consumption over time. So essentially power times time. I added up all the energy that it took to produce and operate the energy, this wind turbine over a span of time of the lifetime of that wind turbine. So it's a quantity of energy. I summed all of the energy over time, literally integrated power over time to come up with units of energy. Similarly, you would say this is how much power it produces every year, and I've integrated the power it produces every year over each year over time to produce a unit of energy. So that energy return on investment compares to cost. If I thought about what's the cost of electricity from a wind turbine, I would also think about all the money spent over the entire lifetime of the wind turbine and compare that to all the energy generated from the wind turbine over its entire lifetime. So that's an energy metric divided by a cost metric, uh, how much money I spent over the entire lifetime. So the difference, let's just say what is normally done with calculating EROI, if you will, of the oil and gas industry is the data used are literally energy production per year and energy inputs per year, because they're usually using data that are annual data. So if you're using oil and natural gas production per year, this is a unit of power. And they're calculating this every year, usually, or every five years or something like this, because the data are annual. And if I even use economic data as proxies for energy consumption, the economic data are dollars per year, usually, right? GDP is, is not a fixed number. It's a rate. GDP itself is a dollars per year number. Right. So they're both rates. So if I'm going to use the rate of energy production divided by the rate of energy input, 
then this is really literally a power ratio or a ratio of power divided by power. And that much more closely relates to price because prices are a reflection of what's happening now and the rates of which things are happening. Can people afford to consume now or afford to produce now? That's what affects prices, not the cost of installing a technology now. It's the prices and markets and, and other things. All right. Well, so then let's talk about the price of fuels themselves. I mean, after all, all anybody ever seems to care about is the price, particularly as we discussed in episode 13, where peak oil is concerned. What are your thoughts about that? Can EROI trends actually tell us something useful about the trends of oil prices? Yeah, so I think they can for this effectively the same standpoint that they're looking at the same issue. EROI is looking at the same issue as prices just from a different lens, effectively because the concepts of net energy stem more from, say, system energy analysis or ecological systems analysis in which the concept of a limit or the concept of feedbacks is usually inherent into trying to understand the system, it is a more natural way for people with that background to think about what the feedback might be, what EROI is too low, in which the system configuration in the case of ecosystems would have to change. Because people studying engineering systems often or ecosystems are thinking about, okay, what are the constraints on how the system operates? And let me try to understand how to design the system or at least understand it within the constraints of that system. The economists are not normally trained and usually don't think about some sort of inherent constraint on the economies. So the idea of thinking about a threshold in prices as creating some sort of fundamental constraint, being a reflection or a feedback of some sort of fundamental constraint on the economy are probably not as common. Now, short term, the answer is yes. I mean, they understand that people change consumption habits based upon short-term prices, right? So this is commonly known, but longer term, it's less clear that these kinds of ideas are taken into account and say long-term macroeconomic modelings. In terms of thinking about net energy or EROI trends versus the trends of prices, because I've been working a lot trying to understand how to translate net energy metrics to economic metrics, I've come to understanding that what's important from an economic standpoint is expenditures and not prices. So what I mean by that is, let's just say I'm purchasing oil at some price, but the question is how much oil do I purchase? And that turns into my expenditures relative to the GDP of an economy. Now this creates a, a relative metric to know if something is too high or too low. And when you look at the data on this, say, cost share of energy, essentially how much the world spends on energy, whenever it's below 6%, the economy has traditionally, let's just say since World War II, has been kind of humming along that energy in this sense is relatively cheap. When it's above, say, 7 or 8%, then energy looks expensive. So price by itself doesn't tell you necessarily whether energy is expensive or not. The expenditures relative to GDP or relative to incomes of consumers, that is what tells you whether it's expensive or not. And so if this ratio gets too high, that would be a metric of whether it's expensive. To give you a scale of expensive versus non-expensive energy in terms of its cost share or what its expenditures are relative to GDP, take England and the United Kingdom as the example of a long-term time series. So before the industrial transition, say before the late 1700s, 
over 30% and sometimes 40 or 45% relative to GDP were the energy expenditures. So if they took all the energy expenditures in England and divided it by its GDP, it would be 35 to 45%. So that's pre-industrial, pre-fossil fuels. And now that number is less than 10%. So we can, in some sense, clearly say, all right, the energy was expensive pre-industrial and it's cheap now. Okay, well, that makes sense. And I think you've also looked at the same question from a food standpoint. So total expenditures on energy and food, price time consumption relative to GDP as a percentage of personal income and using that as a way of measuring the real cost of energy. So can that tell us anything about where we're going? All right. So you bring up an important point, which is effectively how to think about food. And it's often something people think about sort of from a hierarchy of needs standpoint, sort of a food, water, shelter, we're throwing energy in there kind of as a hierarchy of needs or things high on the list of needs. So pre-industrial food and biomass were the energy fuels or resources for much of providing energy services or physical work. So humans would eat food to provide physical labor on the farm and do actual physical work that tractors and diesel fuel does now. And a lot of the biomass was used to feed animals to provide this physical labor on the farm pre-industrial. So you clearly have to include food and agricultural biomass as part of the energy supply from the pre-industrial standpoint. So the question is, should you think about it now? And in my mind, there's no reason not to think about the effectively biological needs of humans to eat food as a core expenditure that's necessary to keep the economy going because people are part of the economy. So even though we don't use food for direct energy services as much anymore in developed economies. For example, I eat food, but I sit here and type on a computer, so I'm not doing physical labor. It's still a core resource. So in my mind, if we want to understand the core energy expenditures over time, I throw food in there and I want to track these over time as much as possible. And if you track these over time, globally, it looks like around the year 2000 was the cheapest energy and food effectively in the history of mankind. So energy and food primarily food, were getting cheaper relative to GDP since industrialization until about the year 2000. And since then, food has not gotten more expensive, but it also hasn't really gotten cheaper, and energy has become slightly more expensive since that time. So it appears as though we've reached the low point in energy and food expenditures relative to GDP, or what I would use as a sort of fundamental metric of cost. Yeah, and so, you know, I think a skeptic would listen to all this chatter we're having here about ROI and costs and so on and say, well, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, okay, so ROI has been slowly declining. The cost of energy and food has been falling steadily for over a century since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And that's often cited as evidence that, for example, the warnings of, you know, the likes of the Club of Rome and limits to growth or Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, or, or even more recently, the fear of reaching peak oil production, that those were all just false alarms. I mean, after all, we went through a year of oil prices under 60 bucks, when just three years ago, nobody thought that was even remotely likely to happen. So since the prices of all commodities have been falling for 30 years, and we're now looking at a worldwide glut of most commodities rather than the scarcity everyone expected, should we not conclude that we've just banished the specter of scarcity entirely through efficiency and ingenuity, and there's no reason to think that we can't continue to stay ahead of scarcity fears? So I get argument to that a couple of things. One is 
sort of addressing that question or thinking about this question is one of the reasons why I wanted to look at sort of the longest time series I could at what the cost of energy and food were relative to GDP. And since those costs put together are no longer declining, in my mind, that's evidence that scarcity in, in some sense, or at least the, the finite size of the earth is starting to impose itself on the economy and limiting some options. So over the last 30 years, is simply not long enough of a time series to put it into perspective. So that's why I kind of look at longer time series and try to say, what was it like before the industrial transition? What is it now well after the industrial transition? So the interesting thing about thinking about energy and food costs is that when I ask people this, like, can they be 0%? Can I spend 0% of GDP or my income on food and energy? Most people say no, right? So if it was a high percentage 200 years ago, and it's a much lower percentage now that's no longer getting lower, and it can't get to zero, then you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the lowest number that you can achieve? And how do you know if you've achieved it? And right now, it's not like technology has stopped. I stated 2000 was the low point and food and energy costs. But since then, we've had a tremendous increase in wind power installations, solar power installations, and you know hydraulic fracturing and uh, horizontal drilling for tight sands and tight formations. So, you know, technology didn't stop in the energy sector, but it also didn't make energy cheaper than it was back then. So just looking at the data, it tells me something's happening independently of whether we think technology is improving, which it clearly is. A second way to look on it is just prices again as a reflection. But the BP data on, you know, world oil prices is instructive here. Effectively, the beginnings, the dawns of the oil age before 1900, the average oil price was, say, around $50 a barrel. And then sort of the late 1880s all the way until 1973 before the Arab oil embargo, oil essentially averaged $20 a barrel. I'm referencing real dollars here, so everything that would be inflation adjusted to, say, $2,015. Okay. But since 1973, so from 1974 to today, oil's averaged, again, over $50 a barrel. So there was a time at which it was expensive or relatively high price before we had gotten used to basically using oil. Then there was a long period of time, almost 100 years, where it was, say, relatively cheap, around 20 And now for the last 40 or 50, it's been averaging 50. So, so I wouldn't say that oil is still as cheap as it used to be from a price standpoint. I would say it's expensive as it was at the beginning of the oil age. Hmm. Now, the difference is, you know, why can we effectively, quote unquote, let's just say afford $50 a barrel oil now or $60 a barrel oil? Well, it's because we don't consume as much for the same service. The response to scarcity in the 70s was literally to change the way we consume energy. We did a few things. One is look for oil in places and go get it places where we haven't gotten it before, such as the North Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, Alaska. But the other response was to say, let me change the other side of the equation instead of supply. Let me change the demand side part of it, and let's become more efficient, effectively enacting efficiency standards for the first time. So we can't really look at the 1970s as not being a fundamental indicator of scarcity. They were The events of the 1970s were, were, in fact, fundamental indications of scarcity. And there were fundamental responses to those implications that will never go away. I mean, we thought of efficiency effectively for the first time after that. That's a fundamental change in the way that, that the economy is being organized. 
Well, I'm glad that you mentioned this issue of price over long periods of time because it's a really hard question. It's something I found particularly bedeviling, especially when you're trying to look at the relationship between resource consumption and economy over time between different cultures or different times. It's just really hard to find a good metric with which to make the comparison. For example, how do you value a loaf of bread or a kilogram of coal in the 17th century compared to the value of those things today when the money itself has changed and morphed and been debased over the centuries? Or what's the right unit of account for comparing the value of things across cultures and centuries? I mean, even gold doesn't work for that because it's been hoarded and rationed and debased from time to time and place to place. You know, I was having this discussion with a hedge fund manager, a friend of mine, who suggested that the services of a prostitute might be a good <laughs> unit of account and measure because they have pretty much the same value to all people in all places and times, whether it's Rome in the year 300 or the U.S. in 2016. So how do you think it's best to compare the value of things across these long time spans and places? Well, I think your hedge fund manager friend might have a point there, whether the, the <laughs> prostitutes' prices are more relevant than the cost of energy and food. But since I study energy and food, then I'll have to discuss about how they <laughs> those things relate. So I'd be interested in, in hearing any definitive literature there is on that other subject. <laughs> yeah, so as discussed earlier, this is one of the fundamental reasons why I thought about looking at the cost of energy and food and basically as expenditures over time. Right. Because ultimately, we normally calculate, let's, if we're talking about net energy issues, the energy return investment of this technology versus that technology and that technology. Ultimately, we're making a choice about how much of each technology we want to have for one reason or another, whether it's the cheapest cost or highest ROI or what have you. But we don't just use one. We use a mix of them. And this is for a variety of reasons that relate to costs and some of which don't relate directly to costs or, or, or net energy returns. So effectively, we have a set of technologies and we have to find ways to aggregate them together to add them up for the whole economy. And the total expenditures on energy is effectively that aggregation done by the collective decisions of everyone, as well as the regulations and market principles or lack thereof that are put into place. That's why I look at energy and food expenditures as sort of the ultimate society-wide metric of how much food and energy costs over time. Just like the power return on investment is inversely related to price, effectively, right now, I think the best metric of the power return on investment of society overall is essentially the inverse of the cost share of energy. So if my energy expenditures are 10% of GDP, and if I invert that, I get 10 and so that's would be the rough proxy for what the net energy of the world is. My research is trying to compare these metrics and trying to understand effectively how I would aggregate a set of individual technologies into the overall system. And you have to have ways to translate back and forth. It's not only a question for net energy analysis, it's a question for macroeconomics in general or tying to microeconomics, and they're fundamentally not very well linked either. So, <laughs> Right. So you're basically sidestepping the problem of converting the equivalence of currency across these different times and cultures by just comparing percentages, essentially. Right. So I think looking at, in this case, relative metrics or the percent of some allocation that is used for purposes X, Y, or Z, in this case, the percent of all money that's used for energy and food, it effectively, to me, is such a defining metric 
of our society that it simply can't be ignored. If we include food expenditures and the, the energy, total food expenditures for work in pre-industrial England, then aside from the non-food energy expenditures, if we add what we're spending on food for physical labor, then the number gets to 70 or 80% of GDP was spent on energy. So basically, I mean, we can view the modern economy or industrialization as declining that ratio, as working to make it so that people don't have to work on the farm because farming was something you had to do, right? The hierarchy of needs, you had to have food, otherwise you weren't going to survive. So technology has effectively been minimizing the number of people working in the quote unquote energy and food sectors over time. How far can that trend go? What's the minimum number of people we can hire in the food and energy sectors? It's sort of the same question in a different way, a different metric of saying, what is the percentage of all GDP that is spent on energy? Yeah, so you found this interesting little threshold, you know, around 6%, 6 to 7%. That's where we we tip from, you know, the economy humming along to slowing down. I wouldn't say I'm the only one who's found that. I was so going to say that sounds, I think, I think James <laughs> Hamilton came up with that same number, didn't he? I've read some of his papers in which he looks at effectively the rate of change of prices, right. uh, usually oil prices and its relationship to recessions. And I think this off-quoted metric is that 10 of the last 11 recessions in the U.S. were preceded by quote-unquote spikes in oil prices. So this short-term phenomenon is there. So having high expenditures on energy effectively is about the rate of change. Like, is the rate of change too fast for people to adjust? And right. people adjusting could be things like, yeah, getting more efficient appliances or more efficient cars. So right. things can change too quickly to adjust. There can also be reasons you can't adjust, which is maybe you can't afford it either. So so I think one of the questions going forward is, is trying to understand that kind of relationship. And it relates to thinking about an energy transition. So let's just go back to the rate of change or the, the 6 or 7% threshold kind of number. There are not a lot of data points for this theory. You sort of look at it and say it, there's a correlation and then probably can't address causation. I think the energy and economy are so fundamentally linked that the causation question is sort of a side issue that's not that relevant for investigating. But the only two times that expenditures were more than 8% of GDP was the late 1970s, after the Iranian Revolution and... And the Arab oil embargo. Yeah, which occurred previously in the, in the 70s. And then a cutoff of you know, a large oil supply, I think around 8 million barrels in 1979. Right. So there's that time, and then there's 2008. And those are the two times when it was 8% or higher. And both of those times were a time of great economic uncertainty and wondering if the economy is structured in the right way and wondering whether people understand how the economy operates. So obviously there was a rapid change that was, you know, in some sense unpredictable exactly when it would occur. In 1979, the rate of change leading up to 2008 was slower, but still, we'd say relatively rapid in terms of people adjusting to it. I mean, there's just the, the competition for resources from China becoming a sort of manufacturer of the world and this kind of thing was was still relatively rapid. And so it, it, it culminated in that high energy price. And so those are the two data points. The economy doesn't grow and the economy grows below them. So those are the two points we have. So it remains to be seen how much it holds, but I lend a lot of credence to the idea because I understand that 
you know, if a feedback can be nonlinear, right? A 1% change from 4 to 5% of GDP spending on energy is not the same as a 1% change going from 7 to 8%. And that's just born in the data. Interesting. Well, okay. So on that point, you know, we've had two and a half years now of low oil prices, and that has forced many analysts to rethink their views on the global outlook for oil and the economy. For example, I, I thought we'd hit the global production peak when prices were high, but now I think maybe the global oil production peak might have actually been last year, 2015, although it's a bit too early to say, when prices were low. And there's still a pretty vigorous discussion about how oil prices can affect the economy like whether low oil prices will eventually starve supply and set up a price spike in, in the next few years, which will really hurt economic growth, or whether the global economy can actually tolerate high prices and it's just how high that number can go before it really puts the brake on economic activity. And I hear you, you know, injecting this concept of the rate of change as well. So what are your thoughts about that, about, you know, where we're going in terms of the investment in the oil sector being sort of starved right now with this low price environment and what that might mean for not only the future of oil prices, but the future of economic growth globally. Right. Yeah, because I, in some sense, are trying to emphasizing the difference between energy and power, the, the real emphasis there is about, yeah, the rate of change effectively. So, you know, in the 2000s and before the Great Recession, people were often discussing, you know, whether oil would reach a price of $200 a barrel. That's right. And, you know, what would happen or what kind of alternatives that we would have and this kind of thing. Well, what a lot of people didn't know then, and I'd say if you're paying attention, you should surely know now, is that the economy can't have $200 a barrel of oil. And it's because of this feedback between the expenditures relative to GDP. If you had oil as a $200 a barrel, the oil itself would cost close to 8% of GDP. And the economy simply is not configured to spend that much on energy. It has to essentially restructure itself in other ways. So other things have to change. Other parts of the economy have to change to allow for that level of expenditure. And the way that the economy restructures before it gets to $200 a barrel is to go into recession. So that's kind of the restructure mode. And if the rate of change of demand, the driving prices high, or a rate of change in a drop of supply also makes prices high, if this rate of change is too quick, then this is reflected in prices. And therefore, because the rate of change is too quick, people can't adjust. And that much makes expenditures go up because they don't change the quantity they consume fast enough. So a recession will make people change the quantity they consume more quickly by firing people and depressing economic activity. So you literally don't have to consume as many resources. And so this is sort of a fundamental question that I've been wondering about, because there's a you know, a tenant of net energy that is espoused by, say, you know, Joseph Tainer, that net energy of a society relates to its structure, right? Or the idea that this input-output relationship, how much energy out do I get for energy input? Does this actually relate to the structure of, of the economy? And at this point, my conclusion is a single number of the energy return on investment of society or the expenditures on energy as a percentage of GDP there's not just one structure that can relate to these numbers. There, there could be multiple structures. I could have a highly unequal society at one EROI or an equal society at another. So the, I recently produced a paper that was trying to essentially put this theory to the test or essentially see if I could see changes in the structure of the U.S. economy, if you will, 
essentially as a function of energy and food costs or a net energy concept. And so that's what I put in the journal Biophysical Economics and Resource Quality, which is a new journal by Springer to help people explore some of these relationships between economic and resource issues. And effectively, there were two time periods at which there were, I would say, fundamental structural changes in the economy as measured effectively by the input-output tables of the economy. Essentially, how much money is each sector of the economy purchasing and selling to each other sector of the economy? Did the flow of this money change in its structure? And one turning point of structural change was the late 60s and the early 70s. And another structural change was around the year 2000 when energy and food costs had reached their bottom, and then they started increasing from there. So there were two time periods at which there were fundamental questions about energy and at which the relationship of the economy with energy changed. And these are essentially fully reflected in the structural changes of how money flowed throughout the economy overall. If I'm not incorrect, the paper you're referring to there was information theory to assess relations between energy and the structure of the U.S. economy over time? That's correct. Okay. We got that one in the show notes for all of our studious little listeners out there who want to go check that out. Okay. So since you're one of the few analysts who's really studied the EROI of various fuels, including renewables and fossil fuels, I'd like to wrap this up with hearing your thoughts about the project of energy transition over the coming decades. I mean, recognizing that the study of VROI, or I guess maybe these days it's more properly the field of biophysical economics, or is it life cycle analysis, LCA these days? That's all still pretty young as a field of study. And that important foundational work still remains to be done in deriving methods and data for effectively comparing the EROI of fossil fuels and renewable technologies on an equal footing over time and recognizing that renewables are a very fast-moving thing to try to study with costs and capacity factors improving significantly, like on an annual basis. So do you think this area of inquiry of LCA can really usefully inform us about what energy transition can and cannot do or what paths we should take or not take? Yeah, so that's kind of the good and sort of one of the ultimate questions. So one of the drivers of my research thinking is that the lure of net energy analysis, which was effectively started in response to the oil embargo in the 70s, was to understand more about fundamental relationships of energy in the economy. You know, the lure of energy return on investment and these kinds of concepts is that they seem pretty intuitive. You think, okay, yeah, I've got to get some extra energy out of the part of my economy or ecosystem that is effectively tasked with giving energy to every other part of the system. And you think, okay, well, that seems like an intuitive notion. And then the question is, okay, oh, now I have to quantify it and relate it to something in order to make a decision. The concept is neat, but the quantification is needed. So that's why I focus on trying to understand how to relate these concepts to the economy, to try to understand what data and prices or, or what people would consider normal economic data, how can I phrase them in a way that relates to net energy concepts? And I've come far along enough in my thinking to realize that you have to include things that are not inherently included in net energy analysis or things that are fundamentally difficult. And so these are things like wages and profits, debt and employment. So these are things that economists would think about and want to model 
And a biophysical economics person might pay more attention to material and energy flows. And they might also pay attention to how many people are employed and doing one activity or another. But the concept of debt is not something that's sort of inherent in thinking about, say, traditionally ecosystems or engineering systems. So what I'm currently working on is effectively some modeling that incorporates the best aspects of both ways of thinking, right? A biophysical way of thinking where there is sort of an inherent limit to something in terms of the space in which the economy can reside. So like something that represents that the earth is finite as a potential feedback. I think this is important to put in because we know the earth's finite. And so the question is, is the finiteness feeding back to us now? How would we know? Well, if you don't put the concept in your model, you can't answer the question. So so that's important to put in. From the economic standpoint, the ideas of debt and wages and profits are, are inherent uh, in the economy and things that we have to deal with. A lot of macroeconomic models don't even consider the idea of debt or money, right? So a lot of the economic models that do projections for a low carbon transition don't factor in debt as a possible influence on the outcome. So that's kind of silly because this is obviously focus of a lot of discussion and we need to think about the concepts of debt. So integrating a few fundamental pieces together in a fully coherent model, even if it's quite simplistic, is I think a necessary goal at this point and something that I'm working on and is necessary to indicate the larger policy implications of an energy transition. So the, these things are resources extraction, wages, Profits, what's the interplay between those? Debt, population growth, and employment, effectively. What percentage of the population is working? I mean, these are all issues that are affecting us right now and that economists are struggling to explain. We're at a period of high debt, lowest interest rates in the history of central banking. According to me, we passed the lowest point of energy and food costs in the history of mankind. So I think these... These things are occurring relatively simultaneously, and these are major trends in the world. Population growth, again, is slowing down, still growing, but, but slowing down. And this demographic transition of the aging of population in developed economies is you know, a fact of things happening. So if you avoid these fundamental factors and try to explain the world, I think you're leaving a major one out. So I'm trying to include these major factors in a, in a single coherent model to have something to say, which could be resource constraints and net energy gains do have something to say about why interest rates are low as a reaction and debt rates are high as a effectively a, a past assumption that the future growth would be higher than it turned out to be. Okay, but do you think all these things can actually tell us, for example, if energy transition is even possible or if it's even a good idea? All right, so if I'm gonna do an energy transition, then the key factors are, uh, so energy return investment is one way to look at it, right? And to say the rate at which I transition basically means the faster I do the transition, the more materials, the more energy, the more people are going to be mobilized to that activity. Right. And as we've discussed in the podcast so far, industrialization has effectively been moving materials, energy, and people as a percentage of total mobilization out of the food and energy sectors. So a transition to a low carbon energy is effectively a reversal of that trend, particularly because we've reached the low point in food and energy costs. An oil and gas boom is 
effectively a microcosm of, say, a low-carbon energy transition. There was a tremendous amount of oil and gas drilling after the Great Recession in 2011 to 2014. There was such high drilling activity that the drilling rates, the rates at which people have to pay to hire rigs to do the drilling went up because there's a certain supply of drilling rigs, so at least some level of scarcity, right? How many drilling rigs are out there? So this drove up the prices for those drilling rigs and necessitated a higher price for oil. If you're not drilling as much, there's not as much pressure on drilling rigs, so therefore the price of hiring a drilling rig goes down. So that's responsible for over half of the drop in costs of producing oil is just the slower rate of drilling. So the same thing would happen for an energy transition, and except it would probably be one or two orders of magnitude more intense than the oil and gas boom. It would involve a larger section of the economy than oil and gas, and it would have to occur across a larger segment of the industry. So energy return on investments has something to say about that in terms of what is the energy return on investment of the technologies that we're using to essentially transition away from other technologies. If we're using lower EROI technologies to transfer away from higher EROI systems, then we would have to assume a higher mobilization than would otherwise occur if the energy return investment of the systems were higher than the systems of replacing. The difference between capital and operating costs has a lot to say about that as well. Those ideas are kind of hidden and embedded in energy return on investment calculations. They're effectively hidden and embedded in cost calculations as well. But most of the low carbon systems people are talking about are much more capital intensive or capital heavy as a percentage of total investment. And that effectively is a driver for making the transition more difficult in terms of having a lot more money up front and putting pressure on the economy uh, than otherwise. So trying to put all that together in terms of giving us some guidance about energy transition, I mean, are, are you saying that whether we continue to transition toward renewables or whether we continue to consume fossil fuels, that, that costs and energy expenditures are going to go up no matter what? Or does this data give us any guidance as to which is the better path? Right. It doesn't say that the costs and expenditures will go up no matter what, but it does imply that the rate at which you invest in the energy sector in general, let's say, effectively makes prices higher. A higher rate of investment means a higher rate of employment, a higher mobilization of activity that go to the energy sector. So that you shift the size of the energy sector, making it bigger relative to the non-energy sector. So effectively, fewer people in the non-energy sector are paying the salaries of an increasing quantity of people in the energy sector, even though it's still a relatively small percentage. Just that shift puts pressure on prices. So the faster you transition, the more that shift occurs and the higher you would expect the price of energy to go during the transition. So the faster you transition, the higher the price is going to be in the short term. And we know that high prices in the short term, if they occur quickly, don't allow people to adjust consumption, which makes expenditures go up. And then we know if expenditures are high enough, you can put the economy into recession. So that's one of the key probably policy questions and outcomes to answer is, Here's how fast you can transition without putting the economy into recession. Now, that's a really interesting insight, but I don't know. I hear that and I just think, yeah, but the rate at which we do energy transition is no longer something that's really that optional, right? Or over which we have a lot of discretionary decision making. I mean, 
we are fundamentally driven toward energy transition by the problem of climate change. I mean, that's the fundamental underneath all of this. And the data that we're getting about climate change tells us that we need to be largely decarbonized globally by 2050, which in terms of the speed of energy transitions historically might as well be tomorrow. So bearing that in mind that we do have a sword hanging over our head here and we have a deadline, what can this research tell us about how we should be proceeding? Right. So in terms of the, the carbon mitigation question, I think that's the question. In my mind, or my best guess, and certainly my hypothesis at the moment would be that we would not transition to a low carbon, let's just say less than 10% greenhouse gas emissions relative to the turn of the century by 2050 without putting ourselves and putting the economy into recession by that time. It's not the same as saying it's not something that is worthy of doing, but I think that's the trade-off. Now, the problem is that the economic models that are used to inform the low-carbon transition simply can't account for the rate of the transition. So the answer from all the models is that essentially they can't tell the difference between a low-carbon economy and a high-carbon economy in terms of GDP, right? The results from the IPCC reports that are put in there from the economic modeling effectively is saying if you transition to effectively a zero net carbon economy by the end of the century to reach a two degrees target, that the percentage drop in GDP by the end of the century would be about 5%. Effectively, their assumed economic growth by that point is that we would be, say, three or eight times richer by the end of the century. So you're like, okay, I'm going to be 800% or 300% richer if I don't do climate mitigation, but if I shift resources and do climate mitigation, I'll be about 10% less. So instead of 300% to 800% richer, I'll be 270 to 720% richer. Effectively, that's saying I can't tell the difference. Right. And the reason they can't tell the difference is because the rate of the transition isn't included in the modeling and debt isn't included in the modeling. So in my mind, to understand the rate of transition, I simply have to account for these things. And energy return investment helps these ideas, help us think about what the levels of debt would be if you don't have the resources to shift and you're shifting the payment into the future, then that would increase debt, right? Wow. That's a super interesting insight that debt is going to be a major feature of energy transition. Right. So we've effectively you know, increased debt. And in some sense, one of the major differences between, say, today and the 70s when oil prices were high, let's just say 2008, and the Great Recession when commodity and oil prices were high. Well, in the late 70s, the interest rates were raised to try to prevent inflation and solve the problem of stagflation. So they were basically the highest in the history of central banking. And now we have interest rates at the lowest point in central banking. So for 20 or 30 years from the late 70s, until around 2000 or the mid-2000s when interest rates eventually got drove to zero after the Great Recession, you could effectively have a business and just not actually fundamentally make a profit, but just acquire debt and refinance along the way, right? This was what people meant by the Greenspan put, that he said, if the economy is not growing, I'm just going to lower interest rates. So you're thinking, well, I acquired some debt in order to have my business operate. I didn't quite make as much money as I needed to pay off the debt. So I'll just refinance at a lower interest rate. Okay, well, then I'll do that again. Well, then I'll do that again. Well, 
you can't do it again now, right? We're at zero. And central banks are afraid to go much below zero, even though there is debt out there at a below zero interest rate. There is savings at a below interest rate. Because, yeah, the thought is that people will just take the money out of banks and put the cash under their mattress. So you have a backstop there. So you can't have tremendous negative interest rates. So this is the conundrum that's on. So to try to understand the potential for people to invest in an energy transition independent of the ability for people to invest in any profit-making activity, I think is unwise. I think we have to have it in that context. And right now, the low interest rate and high debt situation is indicative of the difficulty of people finding profitable investments in general. But energy, since it's a necessity, has to keep getting invested in. You can't not invest in energy. If you don't invest enough, the prices will go up. You will reach expenditures that reach the 7 or 8% threshold, and the response will be invest in the energy sector to try to solve the problem. In some sense, that's that's what we saw. The investment after the Great Recession was in hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling for oil production. That was the response. Yeah, right. And now we have some very attractive and profitable investments available in, in renewables, which is handy. Uh, it's going to take, I think, very patient capital in the long run. We're going to need substantial amounts of capital that are willing to accept 3-4% returns probably. But right. the, the opportunity is there. Interest rates are low, indicating people are having a, say, quote-unquote, hard time finding investments like they're used to, say, before you know the 2000s or this kind of thing. Uh, I think exactly as you just said, people will have to become more used to investing in lower rate of return things. And the renewables are there, right? I mean, you can make a profit investing in, say, wind and, and solar projects, but you just might not make as much return as you were investing in Apple or electronics 20 years ago. Right. So the, there is a feedback there that the more you have high capital infrastructure in the energy sector, in, in this case, so renewables like wind and solar are high proportion of the money goes to capital investing versus operating costs. This is a feedback towards a, a lower growth situation in the sense that you're investing in things that produce slower returns. They literally produce them back slower because they're paying back the capital over a long period of time. And that's not a horrible thing. That's just the nature of it. So I think it's all part of the just the evolution of the economy in general. The longer the interest rate situation stays low, the more attractive renewables look. Lower interest rates make renewables look more attractive because they pay back slower. So it's reasonable to expect that we'll continue to promote renewables going forward from now. Hmm. That's a nice thought. Well, thank you, Carrie. This has really been an informative discussion. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Carrie King, a research scientist and assistant director at the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. I hope that transition observers who have taken it for granted that decoupling and improving energy intensity can proceed worldwide and help us with the project of energy transition will take a close second look at those ideas now and explore the research that Dr. King and some of his peers in the fields of life cycle analysis and biophysical economics are publishing. I think it's one of those ideas that has gotten traction in policy circles mainly because it's pleasing and not because it's correct. Once you look beyond the simple math that is usually put forward to support the claim of decoupling, 
or better, look deeply into what an energy intensity ratio is actually saying once you decompose a big gross metric like GDP and start looking closely at a fully internalized representation of the energy used by an economy, the idea becomes very squishy and suspect. It's certainly nothing that we should be baking into our econometric models and allowing it to convince us that everything is going to work out via its magic. And I hope that Carey's conclusion is wrong, that the speed of energy transition that we need to have in order to head off an intolerable degree of climate change will likely push the economy into a recession. Not only is that a possibility that no one wants to hear, it's an outcome that would probably dissuade people from pursuing energy transition if they knew about it in advance. But what else can we do? Ignoring climate change or refusing to take action on it is not an option if one wants to see human society hold together for another century or maybe substantially less. The only sensible course of action is to try to do our very best to model the relationship between resource consumption and the economy and then reduce our consumption of resources, not with the aim of maintaining a certain rate of economic growth, but with the objective of delivering things like happiness, safety, and peace. If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 ton, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I To the company store. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In keeping with the theme of this show, Rembrandt Kopelar, a researcher at the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London, has a new meta-analysis on the net energy and energy payback period of solar PV. The study reviewed 29 studies on how quickly silicon solar PV modules pay back their embedded energy and what their net energy ratios are. The meta-analysis was designed to straighten out, or as the author put it, harmonize, the differences in data vintage, the boundaries of analysis, and the technological configurations that the various studies used. The lack of this kind of careful work in EROI and LCA studies on solar PV has been one of my long-standing complaints, and so I'm very pleased to see that Rembrandt has made this important contribution to the literature. Unsurprisingly, he found that when comparing studies using data collected before and after 2009, the newer studies indicated half the energy payback time and twice the net energy return, as in the older studies. In other words, the modules have become significantly more efficient while needing less energy to make them. I know I repeat myself shamelessly here, but I'll say it again. Renewable energy is a fast-moving target. The vintage of the data really matters. Item 2. In addition to its new line of solar shingles, Tesla has another achievement to brag about. It has converted the island of Tao in American Samoa to run on solar. Using a 1.4 megawatt solar array from SolarCity, which has now been formally merged into Tesla, and a 6 megawatt hour battery array comprising 60 Tesla power packs, the solar-powered microgrid is now the island's main source of energy and is capable of powering the island for three days with no sun. 
The project was funded by the American Samoa Economic Development Authority, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Interior. The island's 600 residents will no longer have to burn over 100,000 gallons of diesel fuel per year to power its generators, and they say that the system is far more reliable than the irregular shipments of fuel on which they have long relied. Item 3. Alert listener Andrew passed along an item in follow-up to episode 30 on the future of wind. Apparently an experimental new project by GE to be constructed in the Swabian Franconian forest of Germany will use wind turbines that store energy by pumping water. Four GE turbines, which happen to be the tallest in the world at 809 feet, will produce 13.6 megawatts of power and store energy by pumping water about 100 feet up inside the tower when there is excess power and then letting the water flow downhill to generate electric power when it is needed. Basins around each tower will store 9 million gallons of water and a man-made lake in the valley below the wind farm will serve as the ultimate reservoir. The wind farm should connect to the grid by 2017 and the hydropower units will be finished by the end of 2018. So that will be a fun project to keep an eye on and see how well it works. And finally, item four. The closely watched battle over Illinois' energy future has taken a few new twists and turns since we last mentioned it. Legislators in Illinois removed a request for high demand charges that Exelon had managed to have inserted into the massive 446-page energy bill, a day after an internal memo in the office of Governor Rauner called the charges insane. Other special incentives that would have supported aging coal plants were also withdrawn, but a 10-year bailout to keep open Exelon's two nuclear plants in Illinois remains, under which consumers will pay the utilities a special subsidy of about $235 million a year or $2.4 billion over the decade, for generating zero-carbon energy. On the renewable side, a provision in the bill that would have killed retail net metering for solar was also scrapped, but a new provision will force residential solar net metering back into a wholesale rate once a 5% cap is reached. A renewable portfolio standard will require developments of 1.3 gigawatts of wind and 300 megawatts of new solar. Financing for new wind and solar projects in Illinois, as well as a utility-run energy efficiency program, will be expanded. For the first time, ComEd will be allowed to earn a return of up to about $400 million a year in investments on energy efficiency programs, and the company will be required to reduce electricity's usage in its service area by 21.5% by 2030. The agreement has now passed both houses of the state legislature and, at least as of this December 3rd taping, is expected to be signed into law by the governor. However, ongoing budget stalemate may hold up real resolution. This has been a long and hard-fought battle in Illinois, and although it does give one hope that at least some state legislators have not forgotten the art of compromise and effective governance in this ever-so-polarized time, it also makes the second U.S. state to approve a very large subsidy for uneconomic nuclear plants and could set a precedent for other states to follow suit. Now, that may be a good thing for the climate, but paradoxically, it could also actually slow down the progress on energy transition itself by diverting ratepayer funds to old nuclear plants instead of new renewables. We should pay close attention to this question as other states grapple with the closure of their own nuclear capacity. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. 
The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.